Northeast and much of the country got hit by a big snowstorm today. Not quite as bad as predicted, but then again, it's supposed to continue sporadically overnight. The original storm alert was until 6 a.m. here in the New York metro area. Uh, but I woke up to some snow this morning in New York City, but nothing I couldn't handle with my all-wheel drive uh, vehicle with four different drive modes, snow mode among them. And so now I'm sitting here in the comfort of my office looking at the snow-capped landscape and enjoying an Alec Bradley Toro-sized cigar from their new Kintsugu, Kintsugi, actually, Kintsugi collection, uh, my latest collection from the General Cigar Dave. This is the last one of the month shipment. I only restrict myself to what I get from the shipment, which is usually three cigars a month. No harm there, that's for sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another National Preview Online podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show. Do so by going to either your iTunes App Store or Google uh, Podcast Store, whichever device you use, and subscribe that way using the native uh, podcast uh, aggregator apps available on those devices. And the alternative, you can download the free Podbean app from either of those two Play Stores. Podbean is our hosting service. However you subscribe, you will be notified whenever new episodes are uploaded and you were able to leave reviews, make remarks, um, request information, so forth and so on. We please ask you to leave a review, a good review. The more reviews we get, the more positive they are, the more readily the show will be found by other listeners looking for new news commentary, conservative talk, and what have you. So we thank you for that in advance. So we hope you'll give us a review. So I'm still reeling from the death of Rush Limbaugh a man who single-handedly remade, or I should say made, talk radio. He was the prototype. There's been no one like him before. I doubt there'll be anyone like him since. There have been other successful talk radio hosts, but none with his capability. And they readily admit this. Even his close friend, Sean Hannity, who has a very successful radio show, admits that there's no one like Rush. And I don't think even Sean could do what Rush does in that Sean is a very capable host and capable of interviewing guests and fielding questions from callers. But I don't think anybody could just talk for three hours like Rush Limbaugh used to do. And he could do it. He only took to the phones because he wanted to interact with his listeners. But he was perfectly capable of entertaining the public without phone calls. The phone calls just made it more interesting. And that open line Friday that he used to run every week at the end of the week where he allowed the callers to ask him any question on any subject and he was never at a loss for words and always had an intelligent answer for them. Despite the man's enormity uh, in the business, I, I gave a tribute to him yesterday on the show, look how differently people on the left treat significant conservative figures when they depart this earth or come to grief, than they do liberals. Case in point, the old gray lady, the New York Times, all the news that's fit to print. At least, that's what it used to be. Now it's all the news that they see fit to print. Let me read you a little bit about um, what the New York Times had to say about um, Rush Limbaugh in the aftermath of his death. This is written by Jeremy W. Peters. Let me just take a puff. 
Rush Limbaugh was a uniquely merciless media voice whose influence frightened and awed presidents for three decades, often at moments of trauma for the nation and of political upheaval that they could trace back to something uttered through the radio host's microphone. In 1992, as President George Herbert Walker Bush faced a revolt from the right led by Patrick J. Buchanan, a rival Mr. Limbaugh had promoted, Mr. Bush extended an olive branch by inviting the host to stay overnight in the Lincoln bedroom. Mr. Limbaugh returned the favor by leaking that the president had been so gracious he carried his guests' bags upstairs. In 1995, after Timothy McVeigh killed 168 people with a fertilizer bomb, in Oklahoma City, President Bill Clinton called out the promoters of paranoia on the airwaves in a rebuke that was widely seen as directed at Mr. Limbaugh. Within minutes of the announcement of Mr. Limbaugh's death on Wednesday, former President Donald J. Trump called Fox News to offer his condolences on television live. He praised his friends, a golfing buddy in Palm Beach, Florida, for backing up his spurious claims about having been cheated of victory in last year's presidential election. Mr. Limbaugh wasn't the first conservative media star to endorse Mr. Trump, but he was among the first to popularize and normalize for many Republican voters and politicians the style of politics that will become synonymous with the Trump name. There was no person or subject that was off limits to Mr. Limbaugh's ire. Black people, gay men, lesbians, feminists, people with AIDS. The 12-year-old daughter of a president, I assume we're referring to uh, Chelsea Clinton here, an advocate for victims of domestic violence, all found themselves the subject of denigrating put-downs by Mr. Limbaugh over the years. He spun conspiracy theories about the supposed involvement of Mr. Clinton and his wife in the death of the former deputy White House counsel Vince Foster and spread lies about former President Barack Obama's birthplace, He insisted in 2009, for instance, that Mr. Obama has yet to prove that he's a citizen and almost always referred to him on the air by using the former president's middle name, Hussein, a trope that right-wing commentators use to evoke the false impression he was not an American and possibly a Muslim. Yes, there was nothing bad that the mainstream media can't say about Rush Limbaugh, and particularly the New York Times. So I thought it instructive to go back and look at some other obituaries and comments they made in the aftermath of people's death. Fidel Castro kissed off on November 26, 2016. Here we have by Anthony De Palma, November 26th. 2016. Fidel Castro, the fiery apostle of revolution who brought the Cold War to the Western Hemisphere in 1959 and then defied the United States for nearly half a century as Cuba's maximum leader, bedeviling 11 American presidents and briefly pushing the world to the brink of nuclear war, died on Friday. He was 90. In declining health for several years, Mr. Castro had orchestrated what he hoped would be the continuation of his communist revolution, stepping aside in 2006 when serious illness failed him. 
He had held on to power longer than any other living leader except Queen Elizabeth II. Of course, Queen Elizabeth II doesn't run her government. She's a figurehead. Castro ran his. He became a towering international figure whose importance in the 20th century far exceeded what might have been expected from the head of state of a Caribbean nation of 11 million people. He dominated his country with strength and symbolism from the day he triumphantly entered Havana on January 8th, 1959, and completed his overthrow of Fulgencio Batista by delivering his first major speech. A spotlight shone on him as he swaggered and spoke with passion until dawn. Most people in the crowd had no idea what Mr. Castro planned for Cuba, a master of myth and image. Now, they gave some digs to him. He wielded power like a tyrant. But he they they talked about how he did a lot of things and got full employment. Yeah, it's a communist country. Either work, you get thrown to the sharks. Uh, you know, it's just amazing how a despot, a piece of garbage, a man who threw um, opponents in prison just because they opposed him politically, uh, this is the guy they give accolades to. But an American like Rush Limbaugh, they can't do. And much of what they said about Castro was not true. He didn't bring the Cold War to the Western Hemisphere. The Cold War was well underway in the Western Hemisphere long before Castro made the scene. The American government got rid of people in Guatemala that they thought were communist and socialist. Uh, Castro was just the latest when he came along in 1959, but he was far from the first. Moving right along, there were others that the uh, Times over the years have... Uh, heaped praise upon Yasser Arafat. You all remember him, the Palestinian terrorist. Yasser Arafat, this from the uh, obituary by Judith Miller of the New York Times on November 11, 2004. Yasser Arafat, who died this morning in Paris, was the wily and enigmatic father of Palestinian nationalism, who for almost 40 years symbolized his people's longing for a distinct political identity, an independent state. He was 75. No other individual so embodied the Palestinians' plight, their dispersal, their statelessness, their hunger for a return to a homeland lost to Israel. Now, this sort of thing, reading, uh, writing about a, a man who was a terrorist, and responsible for more death and destruction that you care to imagine, is is simply deplorable. And in other parts of the Western world, like in France, the only place he could go uh, where they would give him that kind of treatment, they gave him like a a state funeral for some uh, long-lost or long-revered leader of a respected nation. The man was a terrorist, plain and simple. That's it. One of the reasons that Donald Trump was able to achieve the amount of peace initiatives that he did in his four-year term, four major peace agreements between Israel and Arab neighbors, was because he did the smart thing that nobody else had done. He got the damn Palestinians out of the equation. The Palestinians have been deliberately 
kept ignorant and poor by their leadership so that they could be whipped into frenzy because their only objective is not the state of their own, is not peace with Israel. Their idea is peace without Israel because they don't want an Israel. They want Israel wiped off the face of the earth. And lest we forget how Israel came to be. The Israelis didn't steal that land from the Palestinians. It was anti-Semitism that moved many of the European nations to give land to Israel. Look at a map of the world before World War II and look at the map of the world after World War II and see which nation lost the most. It was the British Empire. They underwent a serious contraction following World War II. And it was the British Empire that gave up that land in the desert to make the state of Israel. Why? Because an anti-Semitic European intelligentsia didn't want the Jews living there. See, secretly, some of them sympathized with uh, not Hitler's malevolent treatment of the Jews, but the other part of the belief that uh, somehow the Jews had stolen Germany from the Germans. A lot of sick people in the world, and not the least among them, reside in uh, Europe. And so the Israelis took that land, and it was historically where they had, uh, were born as a people, and the conflict has, has raged uh, ever since. By eliminating the Palestinians and their issue from these things, Trump was able to ad- achieve great peace initiatives. But let's go on. The New York Times also had great things to say about Mao Zedong. Now, this is really the icing on the cake. Now, I realize that in school, when it's in session, lately there's been no school for 37% of the kids in this country, but we'll get to that in a minute. They often say that the winners of wars write the history books, and that's true. Uh, I had people tell me many times that, and these, when I say people, I'm talking about professors of history that I knew when I was in college, who told me that... um, It was almost surreal when they, when they studied the um, Nuremberg trials, because at those trials you had Nazis that were tried for atrocities, and many of them did commit horrific atrocities. No one denies this, least of all me, especially with a son who's Jewish and a wife who's Jewish. But sitting at those trials in judgment of the Nazis were the Soviets, and nothing that the Nazis did, evil, malevolent, and sadistic as those things were, could possibly have ruffled the feathers of the Soviet generals and soldiers and judges sitting in judgment of them, given what Stalin had done to their own people. Joseph Stalin was a lunatic, and he was a madman, but he was on the winning side. So these things weren't written about at the time. They weren't discussed. Mao Zedong, likewise, went on to lead a very, very powerful country. He didn't suffer a loss. A lot of what he did was hidden. But the reality is that Mao Zedong killed more people than Hitler and Stalin combined. I give you that preface to this. By Fox Butterfield, in the New York Times, September 10th, 1976. 
Mao Zedong, who began as an obscure peasant, died one of history's great revolutionary figures. Sounds like they're putting him on a par with George Washington, for God's sakes. Born at a time when China was racked by civil strife, beset with terrible poverty, and encroached on by more advanced foreign powers, he lived to fulfill his boyhood dream of restoring it to its traditional place as a great nation. In Chinese terms, he ranked with Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor who unified China in 221 BC and was the man Chairman Mao most liked to compare himself. With incredible perseverance and consummately conceived strategy, he harnessed the forces of the agrarian discontent and nationalism to turn a tiny band of peasants into an army of millions, which he led to victory throughout China in 1949 after 20 years of fighting. Along the way, the army fought battles as big as Stalingrad, and suffered through a heroic march as long as Alexander's. Then, after establishing the Chinese People Republic, Mao launched a series of sweeping, sometimes convulsive campaigns to transform a semi-feudal, largely illiterate, and predominantly agricultural country, encompassing almost four million square miles and a fifth of the world's population, into a modern, industrialized, socialist state. By the time of his death, China had manufactured its own nuclear bombs and guided missiles and had become a major oil producer. I thought producing oil was a bad thing. Isn't that what they're telling us here on the left? They don't want us to produce oil. We have to live with windmills. Windmills and solar panels, that's going to supply all our power. Ask the people in Texas how that's working out for them. Little snow covers the panel, little ice freezes the windmill, Back to candles again. Kicks and giggles. Let's not forget it. But you go back to Rush Limbaugh, and he's this, and he's that. Uh, Few media stars were as crucial in making disinformation, false rumors, and fringe ideas the right's new reality. And toward the end of Trump's presidency, Mr. Limbaugh's willingness to indulge the paranoia among Mr. Trump's most ardent supporters was especially powerful in misleading people to believe that bad news about their president, like his loss in November or his mismanagement of the coronavirus response, was simply made up by his enemies. Are you getting the picture now? What mismanagement of the coronavirus response? Are you kidding me? The man got two vaccines produced by eliminating government red tape. He got stimulus checks to everyone, and he got the economy roaring back. The only place it didn't come back were in places like New York and other blue states, where they deliberately kept unjustified draconian lockdowns in place, all in an attempt to drag the U.S. economy, wreck it, make the president look bad in the hope they could remove him from office and really turn this country into a garbage hole and send it down the shitter. And look what they've done just in the one month coming up on that they've been in office. That's the fact. Making up rumors about the election being stolen. Anyone with a brain in their head and a knowledge of basic math knows the election was stolen. These are not unfounded rumors. It's true. We know it. And we're going to get to more about New York in a second. But one of the things I want to talk about, because it's an issue that's been on the minds of many people, is school. 
because it affects our children, and our children are the future. This is a reader survey done by the Epic Times. It's written by Charlotte Cuthbertson, uh, day before yesterday, updated today. According to this survey, parents across the nation overwhelmingly want their children back in school, in person and full-time, according to a new survey of more than 4,700 readers with school-aged children. Currently, 35% of respondents' children are at school five days a week, only 35%. The other 65 are engaged in something else. Almost 24% are completely virtual. That would include everyone in New York City schools. While some 34% are doing a combination of at-school and virtual school learning. Now, let me, 7% are either homeschooled or have multiple children on different schedules. Now, let me give you a little insight into this virtual uh, blended learning, as they call it, in New York, where some people are in school, and uh, where you're in school part of the time and, and learning virtually the remainder of the time. That's the environment that my son uh, went back to school in, after initially being virtual for the first couple of weeks, by October, they went to this blended learning. <clears throat> Let me explain just how blended it was. Well, it wasn't very blended. It was a three-week cycle that he was on. The days would change. On week one, my son would go to school Tuesdays and Fridays and learn virtually Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. On week two, he would go to school Monday and Friday and learn virtually Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And on week three, he would go to school on Friday and go to virtual the first four days of the week. As you can see, even this blended learning was heavily weighted toward the virtual, less so to the in-person learning. And when they were in school in person, their movements were severely restricted. On the premise that they were trying to restrain the virus, the children didn't even get a chance to stretch their legs and move from classroom to classroom. The teachers moved to them. They were like prisoners in one class all the time. Now, these numbers, they say, roughly line up with information compiled by MCH Strategic Data, which aggregated school districts' uh, numbers up to February 1st. Almost 86% of the respondents of this survey said they want schools to be open for full-time in-person instruction. Many added that they prefer the kids not wear masks because the kids really don't need the masks. More than two-thirds of the parents who had said that their child or children have been predominantly subject to virtual schooling at home also said that at least one child has fallen behind where they would have been if classrooms were open. A respondent from California who has four children ranging from elementary to high school said her children are experiencing a lack of progress in all areas, including social and emotional. My fifth grader who loved school now hates it and is obviously depressed. It is a sin what the politicians are doing to our children. The children need to be in school. Now, another woman from Ohio who has one high school student who is currently doing two days per week in person. Sort of like my son was doing. My child used to get A's and B's. Now he gets D's and F's. He has ADD and struggles to engage in a virtual learning environment. Now, I guess that works differently for different children. My son also has ADHD. 
he seems to do okay uh, in terms from a, from a distraction standpoint. But the the engagement of what these people are engaging in and the quality of the learning, I listen to these classes because he comes to work with me sometimes, and it just doesn't measure up to what should be done with a child if they were going to school. The only thing I'll take issue with of this article in the Times or this assertion uh, by one of the parents about the politicians and so forth uh, doing what they are doing to our children is that uh, I don't blame the politicians alone. I blame them, but not alone. Most of them don't have the courage to take on the teachers' union because they're the ones that are really driving this. These teachers don't want to go back to school. And I'm telling you right now, the mechanism and the laws exist, at least in New York. I can't speak for every other municipality in the country, but in New York, the laws exist that if we wanted school to begin tomorrow, we could compel the teachers to go back to school tomorrow with a stroke of the hand. All the mayor has to do is say, you're going back to school. That's it. You don't go back, we're going to invoke the Taylor Law. Because your salaries, your contracts were all predicated on you going to school and doing a specific job. It's performance related. You're not performing. You're not going to school. You want to sit there and sip coffee in your bathrobe and teach class from the comfort of your own home and not leave and commute like everybody else? Fine. You're not going to get paid what you get paid. You're either going to get fired you're going to get fined, two days pay for every day you're out, which is provided for under the Taylor Law. I did a show on this a few weeks ago. Or I'm going to arbitrarily uh, cite this as a, um, as a failure to perform, and I'm going to adjust your salary accordingly to what I feel it warrants, given what you're actually doing. And he could very probably, very easily and credibly get a, 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 credibly get a injunction from some kind of court and reduce their salaries by 20%. Let the te- Better yet, just do it. Let the teachers go to court and try to get an injunction to stop it. These unions are out of control. Our kids need to go back to school. But I think there may be the sun on the horizon getting ready to rise from behind this dark COVID cloud. Because here in New York, at least, Il Duce, Governor Benito Cuomo, has come under great pressure because now the cat is out of the bag. Now it is well known that he fudged numbers, uh, misrepresented numbers, moved figures around to make things look less drastic than they were to hide the fact that he sentenced 15,000 elderly New Yorkers to their deaths by sending COVID-19 positive patients to nursing homes where they had the potential and the potential was realized whereby they infected the most vulnerable population among us, elderly people in compromised states of health. This was known about the COVID-19 virus early on, and without any compunction for what the fallout would be, Cuomo did this. And one might be able to forgive it if there were no other places to put these patients, but viable alternatives existed. President Trump, I saw it with my own eyes, built a 3,000-bed hospital at the New York Javits Center. During the warmer months, uh, my family and I being avid bikers, we used to bike around Manhattan because there was nothing else you could do. Businesses were closed. My business was closed. So we biked. And I used to drive by the west side all the time on the bike path, talk to the, to the National Guardsmen that were running it. They would tell me, we have 3,000 beds. They're not sending us anyone. And Cuomo still cried. So Trump sent the hospital ship. Originally, to take pressure off the hospitals and just take regular patients. 
He wanted to keep the ship pure in case he had to dispatch it to another part of the uh, world or the country to aid people in this crisis and not have to bring uh, possible COVID infection there by having COVID-19 patients aboard the ship and having to disinfect the ship, so forth and so on. That wasn't good enough for Il Duce. We need more COVID space. He wasn't using the 3,000 beds that he already had, but he cried. And so Trump gave him the comfort ship and redesignated it a COVID facility just so they could send 100 patients there, even though the ship could hold 1,000. Meanwhile, people are dropping like flies in the nursing homes. But before they dropped in the nursing home, Il Duce had them transferred to the hospital. And so when they croaked there, that's where they counted them as, as having died. Uh, so they're using this threadbare excuse. We didn't hide the numbers. We just uh, noted where they died. Yeah, but they wouldn't have died at all had they not been exposed to COVID by virtue of this man's incompetence. Now, this incompetence is more than just incompetence. It's now bordering on criminality, criminal negligence specifically, particularly in light of these revelations we're getting as we're getting leaks, former people in the uh, or people in the uh, Cuomo administration talking about meetings and phone calls and conversations, transcripts and what have you. It's now clear that this was a deliberate attempt to misrepresent the true import uh, of these numbers and the true uh, degree um, of COVID infectivity and um, deaths as a consequence of this ill-founded course of action by Il Duce. So much so that the GOP senators, uh, many of them now, on the Senate Judiciary Committee, are calling for an investigation of Cuomo's, quote, potentially criminal actions. Reading from this article, nine Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee are calling on the panel's chairman, Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, to convene public hearings on New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's potentially criminal placing of CCP virus patients in the nursing homes. COVID. The call for the hearings follows media reports that one of Cuomo's top aides, Melissa DeRosa, admitted to New York state legislators that the governor and his staff purposely withheld information about the COVID virus patients sent to nursing homes where the disease rapidly spread to the aging residents of the facilities. Now, have I not been saying this all along to you in the months that have been going on since this happened? I've been telling you this for at least three or four months. Finally, it's coming to pass. Ms. DeRosa said in a video conference call obtained by the New York Post, quote, we were in a position where we weren't sure if what we were going to give to the Department of Justice or what we give to you guys, what we start saying was going to be used against us while we weren't sure if there was going to be an investigation. As a result, nearly 15,000 individuals died In the nursing homes, the state was forced to acknowledge, but Cuomo and his staff had only acknowledged 8,500 in official reports. I told you how they did that. 8,500 may have actually perished in the nursing homes, but the balance, another 7,500, were shipped out of the nursing homes to a hospital uh, as they approached death and finally perished in the hospital. So they didn't count them as nursing home deaths. But that's where they became infected. And they became infected because nursing, home, because nursing homes were forced to take COVID-19 patients on direct orders from Il Duce. Okay. So that's the, the, what's going on here. We know now the Cuomo administration actively 
concealed the level of admissions and intentionally underreported these admissions in a way that callously and recklessly put facility residents in danger and resulted in an unknown number of deaths. This was the sum and substance of the letter and the point made by the GOP lawmakers to Durban on February 17th. And some of these Republican senators are big names that you know. The nine signers of the letter were Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Ted Cruz and John Cornyn of Texas, Mike Lee of Utah, Josh Hawley of Missouri, Tom Cotton of Arkansas, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, and Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee. Those who deliberately withheld or directed others to withhold material information from the DOJ may be guilty of obstruction of justice, violating the False Claims Act, and numerous other criminal violations. And that's, that's probably a very accurate description because those uh, statutes, obstruction of justice, the feds are big on that, and that's a federal charge. Any homicide charge, of course, would have to come from the state, and that's a heavy lift because now you're asking the, a local DA or the attorney general uh, of the state of New York to have to bring these cases against the sitting governor. But there is a move by a member of the state legislature to impeach Governor Cuomo. So what goes around comes around. Let's see what happens uh, when Governor Cuomo and his uh, stupidity bring down Democratic fortunes in the state of New York. He may be waltzed out the door. The letters are also told Durbin, uh, the signers, that they'll challenge Justice Merrick Garland, who is Joe Biden's nominee to be the attorney general, to open a full DOJ investigation. And that should be very interesting to see, because Merrick Garland, if you recall that name, that was the man that President Obama wanted to nominate to the Supreme Court to replace the seat vacated by the death of Judge Antonin Scalia, his untimely death. And they beat back that challenge because the Republicans controlled the Senate, and uh, Senator McConnell said they should not be allowed to nominate him in an election year. The people should vote on it. And that's why they called him a hypocrite when they put in uh, Amy Coney Barrett. But that's another story. I explained the differences in those two things. But Obama, for his part, was talking about how Merrick Garland was an honest, upstanding, mainstream man, someone that he could trust to be on the Supreme Court of the United States. Well, if he really is that sort of mainstream and honest man, then he should have the courage of his convictions to realize that he is warranted in his investigation of the governor, if he should so choose to investigate the governor, he should open a full investigation and get right to the heart of the matter. No question there. That's what we have going on with Governor Cuomo. But that's not all we have going on with our friends in the Democratic Party. I mentioned the other day, yesterday I just talked about Rush, but I mentioned the other day about these 14 uh, Democratic uh, House of Representatives members um, that are critical to the passing of this controversial bill, H.R. 1. And I wanted to speak briefly about H.R. 1 before we signed off today. Now, H.R. 1 was initially put forth back in March of 2019 The House Democrats passed a massive elections overhaul and campaign finance bill on March the 8th of 2019 that proponents said would greatly increase voting rights and crack down on the influence of money in the U.S. political system. Remember that line, will crack down on the influence of money, and that it's a 700-page proposal 
that at that time was known as For the People Act, or H.R. 1. H.R. 1 restores people's faith that government works for the public interest, the people's interest, and not special interest. Who said those words? You got it. Nancy Pelosi. Now, the sponsor, Congressman John Sarbanes, uh, Sarbanes from Democrat from Maryland, the bill sponsor, said that H.R. 1 is designed to restore ethics and accountability to fight back against the interests of big money and our politics and to make it easier, not harder, to register to vote in America. Now, that got beaten back because the senators were, uh, were Republicans in majority, and so they were able to stop that, that House bill. But now they control both chambers of Congress. And now they're trying to bring it back again. Now, remember they said about they're going to remove the influence of money. Well, how does that work, given that one of the provisions of H.R. 1 is the ability to allow congressional representatives and senators to draw from their campaign contributions, their campaign funds, and use it as salary? Now, if that isn't corruption, how does that get the money interest? How is that in the interest, as Nancy Pelosi said, uh, what did she say? Uh, Works for the public interest, the people's interest, and not special interest. Well, you left one interest out there, Nancy. How about your interest? It's bad enough that people can get elected to the House of Representatives, do one two-year term, or do one six-year term in the Senate and have vested pension rights and medical benefits for the rest of their lives at the people's expense. That apparently isn't sufficiently efficacious uh, of an inducement. Now you want them to be able to draw from their campaign funds to supplement their salaries. That means anybody, that's, that's public money, public money not coming through taxation, but public money coming through the solicitation of campaign donations. This is now public money being used to pay the salaries of representatives. Their votes are therefore subject to the fancy of the people who are greasing the skids for them. This is the height of corruption. There's no way this could possibly pass political uh, or, or judicial scrutiny. And we have to hope that legal challenges, if God forbid, this ill-fated bill should pass. And I I ran down some of the other things that affect the voting, mail-in voting, mandatory voting. You have to opt out if you don't want to be uh, vote, registration of 16 and 17-year-olds, a host of other insane things that would only expand the sort of chicanery that took place in the six swing states that were the subject of much scrutiny in this past election cycle to all 50 states. So God forbid this ever comes to pass. We have to believe that someone's going to sue, and we have to hope that the federal bench being filled, as it were, uh, by um, Donald Trump, all these vacancies that Barack Obama left, and the three uh, appointments to the Supreme Court, that somehow this thing gets beaten back. The Supreme Court didn't have the courage of its convictions to stand up to absolute voter fraud. We have to hope that they get a little bit of a reality check and search deep down in places you don't talk about at parties uh, to see if they'll have the courage uh, and the intestinal fortitude to say that this thing is wrought with corruption and risk and it's unconstitutional and beat it back. These are the perils that we're facing in this country. But don't worry, the New York Times has it all under control. They know who the real enemies are. They want to excoriate geniuses and true patriots like Rush Limbaugh 
while holding up people like Mao Zedong, Fidel, Muammar Gaddafi, and Yasser Arafat as pristine examples of champions of justice and equality. You just can't make this stuff up. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.